Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Taking of the Gry by John Macefield, and this is the sixth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Part 6. When we were in the motorboat, threading through the shipping on our way to the channel, I told him that Drake had come that way, towing with the ship's boats ahead. My old grandmother, he said, she's got an old book written by one of her people who was with Sir Francis Drake. It's a little book, written in the old writing, I can't read it myself, but it's all about this Barbaro, as he calls it. Presently, we were past the Gry, where the sightseers still loitered in their pleasure boats. We neared the entrance to the naval harbour. Tollock turned to Tom. Are you quite sure, sir, he asked, that they're not going to put a boom down here? Well, I'm not at all sure, Tom said. The chances are that they will. They haven't yet. If you want to stop a bottle, Tollock said, a cork in the mouth's the best ever. That's sure. They've got no gear for it yet, though. The marine sentry on the seawall moved a few paces towards us to see us go in. To divert him, I began to clear the fishing lines. We ran through the entrance into the naval harbour and passed some old hulks in use as storeships. Two cables further on, we stopped with our bows to seaward, exactly opposite the entrance to Drake's Channel. The entrance lay between two moles or seawalls, each with a beacon upon it. The space between these walls was perhaps 110 yards across. That was the gate through which the Gry would have to go. And suppose they put a boom down there, said Tollock. Tom shrugged his shoulders. We all stared at that bright gate. The tide was making. A small set of ripple and bubble was coming in upon us through it, slapping at our bows, making us dance a little, and driving past us further into the dock, the muck floating there of corks, straw, packing case wood, a bottle or two, and, as I noticed, some cut flowers. I lifted my eyes past these. We were all staring intently. We saw ahead of us, far out that line of water, lifted, as it seemed, a foot or two above the level of the sea. It kept trembling there. There was one visible rock there. The line of lifted water marked the reef on both sides of it. That's the first turn, I said, pointing to the rock. If you enter her plumb in the middle and keep her straight, she is fairly safe in this reach. Can you trust your compass? The compass is okay, he said. Let's go into it and have a look. We forged slowly ahead against the bubble of the incoming water. Soon we were passing between the beacons, which rose up one on each side, topped by iron lanterns in shape, not unlike those on the sterns of old wooden men of war. When I had looked at it from the gardens in the city a couple of hours before, The set of the tide had made the reefs show their teeth. Now most of the reefs were covered, and except for some whiteness on my right, the water was still, with a few birds sleeping on it or cruising. As I watched my course, I saw a white column rise out of the sea ahead. It went up leisurely against the sky, seemed to spread itself and pause and flash and fall. After a few seconds, the blast of it reached us, a melancholy noise like a whale's blowing. It was the east roarer, one of the few things I should have to guide me. Tom and Grau dropped their lines overboard, but I know they watched the water as anxiously as I did. We went slowly on towards the East Aurora, on a course of east by north. 
The water is exquisitely clear there, so clear that I could see on both sides of me the rocky walls of the channel, almost like the banks of a gorge, all beautiful with scarlet coral and dazzling white shells. I could see fish floating and gulping or flashing away with a quick fin, and I thought to myself, Charles Tarleton, if you don't watch your tip, those fish may be nibbling on you before tomorrow morning. I suppose that all anxious people will snatch at whatever seems like a favourable omen. As we entered the channel, I saw on a rock ahead some of the rather rare Alfa Rero birds. They rose up as we drew near and skimmed away to another rock, where they ran and splashed in the shallow pools after the small fry upon which they live. They are birds of great beauty and speed, blue in head and body with long white swallow tails. They are not often seen now, but I pointed them out to Tom as birds of good omen. You see, I said, they wear the Puro's colours. The middle of that reach is rather uncomfortably narrow. You see, Captain, I said, the sides of this channel draw in like a tightened sleeve there. I was thinking that, he said, sucking in his lips. Can you trust your picture? I expect they've got everything marked on it accurately, I said. It's only ten years old. Well, the rocks won't shift much, that's sure, he said. Rocks on both sides and small corals below and the course dead straight for the roaring rock. He turned to Harry, who was intent upon the reach. They talked together in low voices about revs and lengths. I kept away from them so that they might be undisturbed. I noticed then that the incoming run of water made odd shadows run like water snakes among the rocks on each side, a little below the surface. These shadows seemed ominous to me till I saw what they were. We stole quietly on, and Tom and Grau, pretending to fish with an eye to everything. We others watched the narrow channel and the immense whitish, greenish, or gaily coloured rocks of the underwater reefs on both sides of us. Dark alleys of water led into these here and there, all so clear that one could see tendrils in them, like floating plants, suddenly change shape and leap as the tendrils caught their prey. I had tried to find a rhythm in the spout of the Aurora. There was no rhythm. He only spouted when the water struck with the right pressure at irregular times. Can we count on that rock spouting, sir? Tollock asked me. When the tide's coming in, as it will be tomorrow night, I said. Well, that'll be as good as a bellboy, Harry said. I didn't think it would be myself. We now came to the bend in the channel, quite close to the East Rora Rock. Let's make a turn or two about here, sir, Tollock said. You'll get some fish under this rock. I'd make it just about 43 to this place, Harry said. I think that he had reckoned the distance of the first reach by lengths of the slasher. There'll be eddies and a set here, Tollock said. He made us take a turn or two about that bend in the reach. There was undoubtedly a set towards the reef on your right, and in that narrow place, with so little room to get the towed ship round the corner, a set might make all the difference. It won't be worse than it is now, Tollock said. What does the picture say of it? It doesn't mention the set of the tide, I said. And this is where we turn? Yes, this is the first turn. You'll have to alter course seven points to starboard here. Not much room, is there? None too much, I'd say. Shall we go on, I asked. Shove ahead, he said. The launchee took his remark to mean full speed ahead. Tollock checked him with his hand. Go slow, son, please, he said. You see, he added, turning to me, we've the sun in our eyes here. Go very slow. I don't like the look of that, sir. Oh, what do you mean, the sand? Out to seaward from us, on the Great Barrier Reef that shut us from the ocean, a sandbank had been pushed up in the course of time. There was white water lipping round it and then lipping on, creaming and whitening over the submerged rocks into the channel. 
Does your picture mention Sansa? Tolik asked, as anywhere in the reach. No, no sand in the channel. Well, there is sand there, just on ahead, he said. It's been scoured right over into the fairway, no doubt in these last few years. What depth does the picture give just there, sir? Five fathoms, I said. It's the shallowest patch on this reach. Well, you've not got it, sir. I know the colours of water. You've not got five fathoms there. Not even near. Harry, he called. There's a thief in the vegetable patch. Get a sinker on your line and try the water here. Harry unbent the hook from his line, bent instead a boat's iron crutch to it, and plumbed the depth. Hauling swiftly in, he measured it off across his chest and said, Four of me, which makes twenty-one foot four, and by the look of it, she's shoaling. Tollock sucked his lip while the mate made another cast. She was shoaling. A bank of sand had been piled over or through the reef to shelve half across the reach. And that's not in the picture, Tollock said. No mention of it here, I said. They were blasting on the outer reef, Grau said. In the last of the dictator's days, they probably opened up a way for a current to set the sand in. Well, it's here now, I said. We must see what it amounts to. Carry on with the fishing, meanwhile. As it happened, the fish were busy at that point where the seepings of the tide ran. They bit well, as we got the bearings and dimensions of the bank. It was roughly 80 yards long by 30 broad, running to a ridge, we judged, well in the centre of the channel. It reduced the fairway to less than 80 yards at that stretch of the reach. Just as well we had a look-see, Tollock said, instead of trusting to the picture. We'd have piled her up nicely on that lot. We'll go to the end of this reach and then back again, slowly, so as to have the sun behind us. We slipped on towards the next bend, which is known as the Crook. Just at that bend, they had fixed a bellboy. I suppose the bagpipe is a melancholy music to most Englishmen, but a thousand bagpipes couldn't be as doleful as a bellboy. There was this melancholy bird in its cage, rocking out its crawling clang. The boy marked the starboard side of the turn. The port side of the channel was not marked in any way at that point. It was just left for ships to avoid or to find out for themselves. It was not breaking water, but one could see the sea a paler green there, and guess what lay beneath. We went to the bellboy, then cruised back, watching the water. We found no other shoals. Such casts as we took confirmed the depths given on the chart. Tollock and Harry seemed to work together at the job before them, like a mason's two hands. We were not alone in the reach when we turned again towards the sun. Three gay fishing boats came running in to fish upon the bank. I was afraid at first that they might be naval picket boats come to question us. I was getting into such a state at that time that I saw a naval spy or secret service man in every mortal within a mile. On a signal from Tollock, we returned again to the crook, where the turn was something a little sharper than a right angle. See the jobble, Harry said, nodding at the water in front. The jobble was a four-knot stream running diagonally into the water ahead. It set in from the sea reef and being troubled, though not broken, it was much darker than the rest of the reach. That'll bring her head round, Tullock said. To me, who looked at it from the boat, it seemed likely to bring her broadside round and pile her on the bellboy opposite. We turned round the crook directly into this jobble so that our men might test its strength. It tossed the boat about like a cork, though it did not set us to the bellboy as I had expected. Just beyond the crook, the channel narrowed to what is called on the charts the boneyard. I should say that it deserves its name. When in the boneyard we had the west roarer, that guide to shipping, dead ahead. Hold on with the boat, I said to the launchie. I want to watch that spouting rock there. We held off and fished while I watched the roarer. 
It is a lump of rounded rock rising well above the surface, about the size of a tennis court and the height of an elephant. The sea has worked its way into it in the course of ages and gets well inside it and slaps and gurgles there in the hollow place. Then, from time to time, some running wave fills her, spouts and leaps aloft from the blowpipes with a shrill hissing noise, followed by a sharp gumph, quite unlike the noise of the East Aurora, even if two of the three pipes fail. The chart said that there were two spouts. I saw three, and on asking the boatman, he said that the third had opened recently and that others would come in time, as the sea was always working there, inside. Harry said that it would be better than nothing and that the flash of the spouts might be useful. Tollock pointed to a rip-raps in the mid-channel, just off this west aurora. Looks like another sandbank that isn't in the picture, he said. On going into it, we found that it was not that, but a patch of confused water caused at that state of tide by the jobble mentioned above running into the inset from the open sea. Is this our last turn? Tollock asked. Yes, I said. Alter course here, 12 points to the eastward for the open water. And a good broad channel too, Tollock said, room to breathe again. I thought to myself that that patch of confused water, where a tow would be steadied down to get her round the bend, would be just the place for her to take a shear and go smash into the west roarer. On our right hand there, a great underwater reef trended away to the south. It was either a dark coral or rock covered with a growth to a bright claret colour. The reef is called Snapper Reef, from the fish that can be had there. Away on our left hand was another reef called the Stellamaris Reef, from a ship that was once lost upon it. There is a bellboy where the ship struck. This reef breaks the water here and there. It is an ugly place in a sea. So those are all the flowers in the nosegay, Tollock said. Yes, that's the lot, I said. From here, it's a clear course all the way. And deep? Seven fathoms, deepening to twelve. Right, said Tollock. We'll go back the way we came. A good many little fishing boats with gaily coloured sails stood into the channel between the islets as we turned for home. They'll be fishing here tonight, Tollock said. We'll have to look out for those fellows. When we were back at the sandbank, I did some sounding to find out if the lead would give us a warning of it as we drew near. I found that it rose up so steeply that a ship might get a half four yet be stuck in the sand before the sounder could make another cast. Then its hump did narrow the channel to about 70 yards there wouldn't be much margin for a passing ship there. A block in the traffic, I said. We'll have to go round it, sir, Harry said. A tightish fit, I said. Oh, it's nothing, he answered. We take these things as they come. As we returned, we noticed a party of men in undressed naval uniforms at work at Pulley Hawley at the Mole. There they are, Tom said. They're going to close the naval harbour. Those chaps are manhandling a boom. It looks like it. Uh, they're only assembling the gear for it, I said. They're not quick doers in this fleet. Well, all the life stopped in this land when the old man died, Tollock said. As we passed from the naval to the outer harbour, we saw that the men were in fact preparing a boom. They had some old spare spars afloat there, and they were also rigging some tackles by which to haul them across the entrance. That'll be closed by sunset, Grau said, which looks like a stopper over all, as you say. It's far from being rigged yet, I said. Don't call the door shut till you find it bolted. They weren't doing it with much sense, as it seemed to me. In a few minutes, we had a more cruel shock. The Gry was being unmoored. Two of their admiralty tugs were plucking her out of her berth in the rogue's walk towards the naval harbour. Hold on all, Tom said to the launchies. Then turning to us, he said, they're going to put her into the naval harbour, whether they shut the door or not. We'll follow the shore boats till we see what they do with her. If they berth her in with the destroyers, we're done.
Several shoreboats filled with sightseers were watching her shifted. She stole slowly forward, then straightened on her course, one tug ahead, one alongside, and the boats followed her. We in the launch came with them, till we saw what was to be done with her. She was plucked past the first and second tiers of hulks, storeships and special course ships, such as are in every naval harbour. In the third tier, they brought her round, head to sea, between a submarine depot ship and a seaplane carrier. And there, instead of mooring her, they let go an anchor. Just for the night, Grau commented. The tugs gathered in their lines and made off to their berths. The shoreboats turned for the outer anchorage, and we in the launch went with them. I took the bearings of the entrance of Drake's Channel from the Gry's berth. It was northeast, half north. The distance by estimation and the chart, 650 yards. Back to the tug, Tom said to the launchies. Muy pronto. On our way back, we saw them still preparing the boom. The harbours were to be shut, and our chances of getting the gry were dim. When we were in Tollock's cabin, Tom said to him, Supposing we can reach the gry, what chance have you of getting her to sea through that channel? I'd say a very good chance, sir. Even in fog? Yes, sir. Even thick fog? I've known it dense here. I'd say so. You would be prepared to try it? Oh, yes, sir. My mate and I would try it. And what is the chance? 50-50? Oh, no, sir. Better than that. Uh, 70. More than that, sir, Harry said. But there's luck in these things. Some amount of luck. All right, said Tom. Well, that's the chance of getting to sea. Now for the chance of getting the gry. This tug will be shut into this harbour at seven tonight, unable to put to sea by the one door or to reach the gry by the other. There's only one thing that this tug can do, I said. She must get out of this harbour before she's shut in. She'll have to put into Drake's Channel now and stay there till it's time to fetch the gry. Oh, she'll have to get to sea, Tom said, as though she were going to Merule. Then, when it's dark, she could turn in by Drake's Passage and come to the gry by that. They may bar that too, Grau said. Well, they haven't begun to bar it yet, I said, and it will take them hours to do the job. But I don't suppose they'll dream of barring it. They don't dream of anyone using that channel. It will be there like an unbolted back door. They may bar it, Grau repeated. Well, they're more likely to patrol it, Tom said, with picket boats, or with a QF gun on the mole, I said. The QF gun was the likeliest thing of all, but I was the first to suggest it. There was a kind of chill upon the talk at this point. The thought of a QF gun going taka 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 at us was not cheering. Well, I can't get to sea as though from a rule, Tollock said. To do that, I'd have to have papers, and it's too late to get the papers. It's five now. Well, you'll have to get into Drake's Passage then, I said, and keep there till we start. The picket boats will board us and the police will challenge us, he said. What are we to say to them? Um, say you want to do some fishing. Well, that would be a likely yarn, he said. But it is a likely yarn, I said. We've been fishing and want to do some more. There's a police boat coming past us now. I'll, I'll hail her. She's probably coming to arrest us anyway, Grau said. Not a bit of it, I said. Stay here a moment. I went on deck as the police boat drew near. I hailed the guardian in her and held up some fish. You like some fish? I asked. They said that they would be very glad of some, so I handed down a bucketful. Then I asked if the tug might go fishing among the reefs there and then. Well, they looked surprised, but said, sure. After a pause, one of them said, the whole tug? I said, yes, and they muttered among themselves. Then one said, of course, you can fish among the reefs, but it is dangerous and the harbour will be shut at seven. Don't be shut out. Would you shoot me? I asked. I don't think we'd shoot you, he said, but you'd have to stay out all night and the reefs are bad places. 
Well, I'd like to get some fish, I said. Well, God has put you there, the Guardia said, and after that the place boat sheared away. I called Tom on deck to discuss things. Well, there it is, I said. Police boat 5 says that we may fish in the Drake's Channel, so that is where we will go till it's time to fetch the gry. He did not seem to pay any heed. He was looking at the mail steamer anchorage, where the launches had gathered about the southern mail ship. Well, there's the Garcilaso in from Monte, he said. There'll be mail for Grau in her, if the spies here don't get it. They won't get it, I said. Charles, he said, you've helped all along in this and made all the wise suggestions. I've not really slept since the battle and I can't suggest anything, but now things aren't shaping well. There's danger. Keep out of this tonight. Not I, I said. I'm in this with you. What I prompted, I'll share in. No, no, he said. I'm thinking of the QF gun on the mole. Even if that isn't there, this business may ruin you with green and silvers. All right, I said. But there's nothing you can do. Oh, yes, there is, I answered. And I want now to send you and Grau ashore. When you are there, send out Mrs. Grau to get a lead and line at Chandler's. Yes, and an indicator log. Then get some rest. I've got things to work out here with Tollock. Charles, he said, I want you not to come tonight. There's no need. Tollock and his mate can do all there is to do. I know, I said, but I suggested this, and as a pilot, it interests me. I'm coming. That's final. In any case, you two must go ashore now. Later in the evening, after we've been in Drake's channel for a while, I'll contrive to get to you somehow, to tell you if we can get to the Gry. What do you think about that? he asked. Well, I think that they've been great fools not to develop Drake's channel and use it, or to realise its danger and bar it, I said, but these people are slack and I don't believe they thought of it. I believe that it will be an open back door. There was some more discussion, for he was not easy to persuade, but at last he and Grau went down into the launch and away, and I was left thinking that Tom was more fit for a week in bed than a night raid like ours. When they were gone, I went at it with Tollick and the mate for a few minutes, getting details of the channel, the courses for each reach, the exact distances of each course, the number of revolutions needed, and the allowance to be made for the different sets of tide and current. While we were doing this, a boat from the agents came alongside and tossed aboard a packet of letters and papers for the tug. They had come to the port from Monte in the Garcilaso at noontime. Tollock pitched the packet into his bunk, saying that the evening time was the better for letters. He wanted to be out in the channel before the booms were hauled across. Going on deck, he got the tug underway, and as she moved slowly towards the naval harbour, he told his deckhands to rouse about all their fishing gear. As they had been for a year or so in waters full of fish, they roused about a good display. I had now taken the plunge. I was one of the crew conspiring to commit an act of piracy, which, as Tom said, is a yard-arm crime. I didn't feel any wickeder than usual. In fact, I felt happier. I was bearing a hand for Tom in the hour of his need. All the same. As we drew near to the naval harbour entrance, I became exceedingly anxious. They had not yet barred the way, but the boom was ready or nearly ready, and the gear was all rigged for hauling it across. Gangs of men were at work upon the gear on both seawalls, and the naval picket boats were there, with directing officers fussing about. Among the boats was the harbour police boat number 6, which came up to us as we drew near, and hailed us to ask where we were going. I answered that police boat 5 had given us leave to go out to fish upon the reefs nearby. Well, how long will you be? he asked. Oh, not long, I said, if the fish bite. If they bite or not, he said, remember that this boom will close at seven. Don't be shut out for the night. No fear, I said. Shall we bring you some fish? Oh, yes, absolutely, he said in English. And so we passed through. 
When we were inside the naval harbour, I looked at the sea walls near the entrance to Drake's Passage. They had done nothing there at that time to rig a boom across, nor had they any machine gun on the wall, nor sentry box for that matter. You see, I said to Tollock, they've not barred the way yet. No, he said, and now as we fish, we'll go through this channel exactly as if we had the tow and note every little thing. To do a job like this, you must have the whole channel like a living thing in your brain. Very slowly, in the evening, we went down the reaches, watching the water with all our eyes. The sun was already behind the Sierras when we entered, and the light slowly dimmed upon the scene until the birds, which had been feeding upon outlying rocks, turned inland to roost. As the water dimmed, it took to gleaming from within as the fish moved or darted. We had caught a great many fish that lay slapping in the scuppers. Presently, as we fished in the boneyard, there came a shattering crash from the gun on Nunn's Point far astern. It was followed by the cries and flights of startled birds and distant bugle calls. Well, that's the gun, Tollock said. They've closed the booms now. We may just stay fishing. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.